MLB games happen in MLB stadiums, right? Well, mostly yes. But sometimes, whether it's due to political, environmental, or promotional reasons, teams have played regular season games in some very unique locations across the globe. Let's look at five of those stories on today's episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. On August 12th, 2021, the White Sox and the Yankees played a game in Dubuque, Iowa. You've probably never heard of Dubuque, Iowa, unless you've been there. But this was the first MLB game ever played in the state. And the stadium was located in a cornfield. There were players entering for the starting lineups from the crops in the outfield. There was an old-time wooden scoreboard to be able to keep people at the game and watching on TV outlined as to what was going on. And the outfield area beyond the home run fence, it was nothing but cornfields as far as the eye could see. Now, you may be asking yourself, why would the MLB host a game in the middle of Dubuque, Iowa, where there's not a large population center, where there's no MLB team that plays there? Why would they do this? Well, for those of you who may not know, they played this game in honor of a film called Field of Dreams. Now, for those of you not familiar with the movie, and I highly suggest you go out and watch it if you haven't, it's one of my favorite films of all time, let alone one of my favorite baseball movies of all time. But just to give you a quick background as to, of, to the movie Field of Dreams, it came out in 1989, and it was a big film. It had a lot of stars. It had Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan was in it, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Burt Lancaster. There are a lot of big names in this film. It was actually adapted from a book written by W.P. Kinsella. He wrote in 1982 a novel called Shoeless Joe. The movie did really well. It was nominated for three Academy Awards. It won Best Original Score, it won Best Adapted Screenplay, and it won Best Picture. And if I had to encapsulate the movie in in maybe a sentence or two, it's about this farmer named Ray Kinsella, an Iowa farmer, And one day he hears a voice while he's out in the field telling him to build a baseball field in his cornfield. And he decides to listen to the voice. And he becomes the laughingstock of his family, his friends, and the entire community. But his actions in building that baseball diamond in his cornfield lead to dead baseball greats being able to come play on his field to be able to to come alive again and play the game that they loved while they were alive. Now, of all those passed away baseball players like Shoeless Joe Jackson and many others who came to play on this field, one of them was his father. And he hadn't gotten along with his father before he had died. And the climax of the movie is when he gets to play catch with his dad on this field is built and said, you know, hey, dad, want to have a catch? And it's like one of those moments like, I'll admit it, you know, got me a little choked up. Uh, But it's a great, great film, folks. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It did so much for the game of baseball. And before we get into talking about our topic today, because this leads into it, why did the MLB host a game in Iowa? Well, number one, we know that Field of Dreams was great for promoting baseball on a global basis. It really brought more awareness to the sport. It created kind of a almost a following that that uh, 
kind of canonized baseball as this, this mythical thing now. And it, it really helped in that regard. And the MLB has been doing in recent years more and more special events. And they've been holding these events at unique locations across the globe. So this game was kind of the vision of Rob Manfred, the current commissioner of the MLB. And he said that he went to visit the movie site because the, the movie is uh, the, the, the field where they filmed the, the movie on is still there. It's part of the National Historic Register. And you can actually go there to see where they filmed it. Rob Manfred went to that site in 2016 and he got the idea, we should play a major league game here. And uh, this came about, uh, like I said, in 2016, and it was supposed to happen originally in 2019. It was scheduled then, but then it got bumped back due to some scheduling issues, and it was supposed to be played in August 2020. But then you had the travel restrictions that came up from COVID-19. So the game got kicked down the road again now till 2021, and that's why it finally happened now. So it's been in the works for a while. But the MLB has really adopted this approach to hosting these special events, and they've been happening more and more in recent years, and I think it's really good for the game of baseball. But this isn't a new thing. Baseball has been hosting games at neutral sites for years, and it's really interesting to see why this happened, because it wasn't always just for promotional reasons. So for today's episode, we're going to take a dive back into history. We're going to look at other times the MLB has hosted games outside MLB stadiums, and we're going to look at why they did it. So let's look at the first instance of this, and we're going to go in chronological order like we always do. We're going to travel to League Park, and the year is 1902. Now, League Park was located in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the game that occurred in 1902 at this site was between the Cleveland Broncos and the Boston Americans. Now, you may not be familiar with either name, but they were both part of professional baseball at the time. The Broncos were later renamed to the Naps in 1903. And then fast forward to 1913-1914, they changed their name to the Cleveland Indians, which we all know today. And the Cleveland Indians just changed their name to the Cleveland Guardians, which is going to take place for the 2022 season. And then you've got the Boston Americans, which eventually became the Boston Red Sox. So we have both teams there, early forerunners of modern teams that we know today, facing off at this neutral site. Now, why did that happen? Well, the Cleveland Broncos were the home team for this game. And you would think naturally the Cleveland Broncos would play their games in Cleveland. But there was a reason why they moved it to the neighboring state. See, the team owner of the Cleveland Broncos decided that he was going to move two games out of the city and out of the state, out of Ohio at large. Now, why would he do that? Cleveland and other towns and cities in Ohio, and this was fairly common in the United States in 1902, uh, you know, from the Midwestern states all the way to my home state of Massachusetts. There's still some on the books. You can find them even in small towns across the U.S. I shouldn't even say small towns. You can find them in lots of places across the U.S. The thing was, in it, during this time, especially in Cleveland and other towns, they didn't allow sporting events to happen on Sunday because that was a holy day. They wanted Christians to be able to have a day of rest free from any secular influences. And those laws that were enforced by the government were called blue laws, and blue laws still exist today. But the problem was these blue laws, also called Sunday laws, well, 
just to go into a brief history of them, they've been around since 1755. Again, they restrict your activities on Sundays, and the whole point is to try and get you to observe the day of rest. Well, Cleveland had these rules, and other areas in Ohio did as well, but Indiana, they also had blue laws, but most of the cities that had them had a different clause where they allowed free sporting events to happen on Sunday. So as long as people weren't paying, it's still a uh, acceptable day of rest activity. On top of that, the owner of the Cleveland Broncos knew that he could move the team there for the game and still charge money. But Jeff, didn't you just say that in Indiana, they allowed pro sports games to be played, but they had to be free? Well, there was a loophole there, and that's the fact that the laws were not enforced by the local officials, especially in Indiana, and the owner of the Cleveland Broncos knew this. And there had been efforts in previous years to try and get Fort Wayne, Indiana, and other areas in Indiana to take blue laws more seriously. There was a local ministers group in the city that had been pushing to try and get more strict adherence to blue laws. There was actually a group called the Good Citizens League that had been campaigning for years to try and get more adherence to to follow the blue laws properly. But really, when it came down to it, the owner of the Cleveland Broncos knew that he could move the game over here, get a little money back, stick it back to Cleveland and Ohio for the fact that they were causing him to lose money by not being able to, to host these games on Sunday. So that leads us to this first instance where we have a neutral site for a professional baseball game. So if you'll travel with me in your mind, it's August 31, 1902. The Americans and the Broncos, they square off in Fort Wayne, Indiana at League Park. And there's a crowd, an overflow crowd of 3,500 people, good Christian folks that showed up to watch this game. Admission was 50 cents a person, and the stadium only held to official capacity 2,500 people. So we had over 1,000 people with standing room hanging on to the edge of the bleachers trying to get any view that they could to see this game. Why did everybody show up to this game? For two teams that weren't even from the local area, you might ask yourself. Well, just to give you a snapshot as to why, I found a a quote from a a Fort Wayne newspaper at the time, a local newspaper, and this is what they had to say about it. It said, quote, the crowd viewed this game more as admirers and judges of good baseball than as rooters. The interest, therefore, was not of loud outbursts of cheers as rooters, but only as fans, end quote. So you see the people of Fort Wayne, Indiana really liked baseball. They were excited to see professional baseball played in their city. They showed up for that for that reason, because they wanted to see a good game being played. Now, in addition to that, the Boston Americans had a center fielder named Chick Stahl, and Chick was a native of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he was, you know, kind of the pride of the hometown. He received a standing ovation when he first went up to bat during this game. It was it was a chance to see, you know, their pride and joy be able to play a professional sports game. So you got all these people packed in for this game. They paid money. The Cleveland Broncos owner's happy because he's making bank. The city of Ohio is feeling a little bit left out because their professional team is now barnstorming in other places around the country. And we've got a professional game in this neutral site. So what happened? Well, Cy Young was the current ace pitcher for the Boston Americans, and he took the mound for that game. And the game went 11 innings. 
11 innings, folks. It was quite the barn burner. And Cy Young, who started the game and only let up one run, ended up being the guy in the 11th inning to drive in the winning run. And Boston ended up winning that match 3-1. to one. So there we have it. The first game that I can find in professional baseball history that was played at a neutral site. For our second instance of a baseball game being played at an odd location, travel with me to Roosevelt Stadium for the 1956-57 season. Roosevelt Stadium is located in Jersey City, New Jersey, and this particular situation focuses on one team mainly, and that's the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, why did the Brooklyn Dodgers play games in Jersey City, you may ask? Well... There is a well-documented story of Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley. He wanted a new stadium for his Brooklyn Dodgers to play in. They had currently been playing at Ebbets Field, and Ebbets Field was badly in need of some replacement. And he had been battling with New York City public officials, especially one named Robert Moses, over the when, the where, and the how of where this uh, new stadium was going to be built for the Dodgers. And so the owner had a great idea. Let's put a little bit more pressure on New York officials to get this done. And part of that pressure was to try and move some games outside of the city to pressure them to find the money and make it happen. So in 1956, the Dodgers agreed with New Jersey City officials, or Jersey City officials, I should say, to play eight games at Roosevelt Stadium and then another eight games during the 1957 season. So that's the premise as to why the Dodgers moved their games next door to a neighboring state. It was really about trying to pressure the city officials to get this done and find a new location for the Dodgers to be able to play. Now, what happened? They played a lot of different teams during the 1956 and the 57 season. Just to throw out some numbers, some names at you, they played the Phillies, the Cardinals, the Cubs, uh, the Redlegs, the Braves, the Pirates, the Giants. So there were a lot of different series that were played during these two seasons. But let's recap really quickly. How did the Dodgers do playing at this neutral location in Jersey City? Well, during the 1956 season, one of the highlights was Jackie Robinson, who had been playing for the Dodgers during that time, got to come back to Jersey City, where this was the site where he had played his first professional game when he played for the Montreal Royals in 1956. So he actually got the chance to go back and play in front of very, very passionate fans who were excited to see him come back and play. Now, throughout the 1956 season, out of the eight games that the Dodgers played in Jersey City at Roosevelt Stadium, they won six out of eight games. Not bad. Now, fast forward to the 1957 season. Again, the Dodgers played really well in Jersey City. They won five of eight games that season. And even cooler, we saw names like Ernie Banks, Willie Mays, Frank Robinson, all these guys hit home runs at Roosevelt Stadium during these eight games. So fans got to see these future Hall of Famers just hitting dingers. And what a sight that must have been for them to be able to see. The last game that was played at Roosevelt Stadium was on September 3rd, 1957. The team ended up finishing the season back in Brooklyn. And then a few weeks later, the team played you know, that last game and there was no agreement on the table still after these two years of moving games out of the state between the Dodgers and New York officials. And with that, we saw Brooklyn 
left behind. And the Dodgers packed their bags and they moved to California and became the Los Angeles Dodgers. So those are two instances to start us off of MLB games that were played at neutral sites. I have three more to discuss with you, but first, as always, we got to keep the lights on here. We're going to take a break for the seventh inning stretch. Hey, everybody, it's Jeff, the founder and host of the show, and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the Baseball History Podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber, you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, including our newest show, This Week in Baseball History, where we take a look at the major stories that happened throughout baseball's past and how they relate to America's pastime today. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events, such as the Rounders Fantasy Baseball League. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation just once a year, we have an annual plan that will save you money over the monthly fee. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a Rounders Starting Nine tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting Nine member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. Thanks for sticking with us. Just to recap, we've been talking about times that MLB teams played games outside of MLB stadiums and why that occurred. And we started off going back to 1902, where we talked about a situation where we saw the Cleveland Broncos play a game in a different state to skirt Sunday blue laws so they can make some money and host a game on a Sunday. And then we saw the Brooklyn Dodgers decide to move games outside of the state to put some pressure on officials to get them that new stadium, which of course didn't work. And of course, we started off the episode talking about what just occurred, which was that Field of Dreams game, which was so neat to see where they held a game in a cornfield, essentially, to uh, pay homage to one of the great baseball movies. So let's continue on our journey, folks. We're actually going to jump about 40 years into the future to 1996, and we're going to travel to the Estadio de Baseball, which is located in Monterrey, Mexico. Now, the games that we're going to talk about occurred on August 16, 17, and 18, and these games were held between the New York Mets and the San Diego Padres. Now, this game was significant because it was the first MLB regular season game played outside of the United States or Canada. Now, why did they decide to play a game here? 
Well, look, Mexico has deep baseball roots. We've talked about it in previous episodes. We saw a lot of MLB greats, especially minorities who couldn't get that opportunity to play full time in professional in the professional leagues that they played a lot of games in Mexico. We saw even MLB greats play winter ball in Mexico. So there's always been this deep presence of Mexico in professional baseball. It's been there since the 1880s. It's been a national pastime in the country for over a hundred years. We see lots of current MLB players with Mexican roots. So there's no question as to the fact that baseball is hugely popular there and there's a great opportunity for the MLB to continue growing the sport there. And then on top of that, you think about the two teams that were chosen to go play. We had the New York Mets, and there's always been a strong allegiance to New York uh, within Mexico just because of the popularity of the teams there. But then we also see the San Diego Padres. The Padres play at Petco Park, and Petco Park is actually only 18 miles from the southern border. So there's obviously some proximity advantages here. And the Padres have been leaning into this for a while, trying to build their popularity in Mexico. They were the, actually the first MLB team to place an official team store outside of the U.S. and Canada. They opened one in Tijuana in 1996, and it stayed there for 20 years. They had it from 1996 to 2016. And you could go to this store, and you could buy Padres tickets, you could buy Padres gear, and the team even operated a shuttle that went from that Tijuana store to Petco Park. So if you were in Mexico, you had the proper papers, you could hop on that shuttle, be able to go see a game and head on back, all thanks to this team bus that was set up as a hub between the two. Now, this game was held in the city of Monterrey. This is a huge commercial hub in Mexico. This is actually the third largest urban area in the country. So it's a natural place to hold this game. Now, let's talk about what happened for this three-game series between the two. On August 16th, we saw 23,699 fans pack the stadium to see the Padres and Mets play. And the Padres had a player on their team who is a household name in Mexico. Mexican legend Fernando Valenzuela actually was playing for the Padres during this season. And he was a pitcher, and he got the start for this game. He was also the guy that threw out the first pitch to a standing ovation. So uh, certainly a good night for him. And the Padres were going to enjoy uh, some luxuries of being so close to where this game was held. Bruce Bocci, who was the manager at the time, was interviewed, and this is what he had to say. He said, quote, with Fernando pitching, we're going to feel like we're the home team, end quote, for obvious reasons, not only for proximity's sake, but also, like I said, because they had a legend, uh, a Mexican baseball legend taking the mound for the Padres. And the Padres did not disappoint. So on this first game, the August 16th game, it was a slugfest. The Padres went on to win 15 to 10. Yeah. Talk about a lot of offense. Valenzuela ended up getting the win for San Diego. So nice, nice uh, tip off for him. Tony Gwynn, who was on the Padres during this time, went two for three, had a great game. We saw Ken Caminetti, third baseman for the Padres during this time. He slugged a three-run homer. And then we saw, I believe, outfielder for the Padres, Greg Vaughn, ended up crushing a grand slam during this game. So this was an all-out just offensive fest for fans to be able to watch at this game, and we saw the Padres take game one. So the next night, what happened? Well, the Mets found uh, a little bit more of their uh, 
I guess you could say their medal, and they ended up showing up and really won in a pitcher's duel. They ended up winning three to two in this game, and twenty thousand eight hundred and seventy-three fans showed up again for game two. Uh, of note, not too much happened in this game. Like I said, it was a low-scoring affair, but the Mets were able to rally back and tie the series one to one. So that takes us to the August eighteenth game. What happened? The Padres uh, ended up making sure that they performed, like Bruce Bracci said, uh, well in front of the home fans. They uh, ended up winning uh, through a shutout. Eight to nothing was the final score for this game. 22,810 fans showed up for this, and that was, uh, that was this one in the books. So it was a good outing for the Padres, but it was good for baseball as well, for Major League Baseball. And... Uh, there have been games in Monterey ever since. So in 1999, there was a series. In 2018, there was a series played. In 2019, more recently, there was a series that was played in Monterey. And there are more scheduled in the future. So the MLB obviously has uh, strong interest in continuing to build the fan base in Mexico, as they should. All right, folks, let's go ahead and travel to the Tokyo Dome. The year is 2012, and we see a lot of games that have been played over in Japan. This is not new. I'll tell you why I chose the 2012 game in a second. But just to recap, the MLB has hosted series in Japan in 2000, 2004, 2008, and then 2012. The reason that I'm focusing on the 2012 series is because it was the first series to feature Japan's national baseball hero, Ichiro Suzuki. So this season, this this game was played between obviously the Seattle Mariners and the Oakland Athletics. This was a two-game series that was going to take place on March 28th and March 29th. Now the weird thing about this game was that even though they were regular season games, they counted, they were held during the rest of the league's spring training. So you have two teams playing regular season games but then having to go back and continue to play spring training team games when they're done. Now, why did Major League Baseball do this? Well, mainly it was because they wanted to make sure that they could get these games in and factor in the travel. So having to travel so far, play this two-game series, get back, and be right, I guess you could say, for the rest of the season, they wanted to build that buffer in. But these two games counted for both teams. Now, we, we've we talked about just now, there's been a lot of times the MLB has hosted games in Japan. Why Japan? Like we've talked about with other locations. Well, look, baseball is the most popular sport in Japanese culture. It's huge there. It's been in Japan since 1872. They even have their own very popular professional league called the Nippon Professional Baseball League. So we see a very strong presence of baseball in the country as a matter of fact, almost 70% of the MLB's international revenue comes from Japan. So there is a huge interest in the sport there. And that's why the MLB obviously continues to try and grow their presence. So every time we see an MLB game hosted in the country, everybody shows up. We're talking crowds of forty to 55,000 people come out for these games. And these two were no exception. So let's talk about what happened. On March 28th, that first game, it was held, the game started at 6.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So imagine the jet lag that some of these teams were were feeling. And that's not even counting Seattle, which was on the West Coast time, so it's even earlier for them. But uh, 
and the fans too. We can't forget the fans having to tune in at 6, 10 a.m. to watch this game. So Ichiro finally, finally was able to play in front of his countrymen. But this wasn't the first opportunity that he had had to do so, actually. When he first entered the league, so in 2003, early on in his career, he had a chance to go play uh, in an MLB uniform in Japan. But that series, that MLB series, was actually canceled because that same month, the Iraq War broke out. And so they ended up canceling the series due to international travel restrictions. (laughs) So, I mean, better late than never, right, Ichiro? So he finally gets to go back to Japan and play. He shows up for that first game. The Mariners ended up beating the A's 3-1. to They did it in 11 innings, and 44,227 fans showed up to watch this game. The Mariners had put Felix Hernandez on the hill, and boy, did he have a great game. He went eight innings. He ended up getting pulled uh, just because he had run out of gas, unfortunately, but pitched a very strong eight innings. Ichiro showed up for this first game. He went four for five, and he also added an RBI. So great start to this series for the Mariners. What happened in that second game? Did they pull off that sweep? Well, that March 29th game actually went to the A's. The A's showed up for that second game, and they did it in front of 43,391 fans. Again, the the people showed up for this game. Uh, Ichiro went a little bit cold in this game. He went 0 for 4. But the big name in this game was the A's had started Bartolo Colon, and Colon pitched eight scoreless innings in this game and ended up notching out the win. So there you have it, folks. Baseball in Japan, obviously there was a rich history of it, uh, but focusing on that one in particular to see Ichiro Suzuki get the chance to go back and be able to play in front of the, the country that loves him so dearly. Let's go to number five, our last a uh, glimpse into baseball holding games at neutral locations. This one actually play takes place down under at the Sydney Cricket Ground in Australia. This happened in 2014. And the two teams that traveled down under were the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Arizona Diamondbacks. This was a two-game series, and there were some things that made this actually very significant. This game was the earliest regular season game in MLB history. This game took place on March 22. So we see this, again, because of the travel time involved in going there and coming back. This game was scheduled very early on, but it was considered a regular season game for both clubs. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would the MLB hold a game in Australia? Well, let's go through it. Look, baseball is growing rapidly within the country. It has been for several years. And we know that uh, the MLB likes to take advantage of opportunities to host games in places where they see the game continuing to grow very strongly. And look, baseball isn't new to Australia. It's been there since the mid-1800s. They have a professional baseball league called the Australian Baseball League. So this was a chance to really continue to grow the sport. We saw... um, uh, I can't remember his name, in particular, an Australian entrepreneur really pushed and put up a lot of his own money to make this happen because he really believes in the potential of baseball within the country. But he was uh, very instrumental in making this happen. I actually got a message from Michael on Instagram. He is an Australian baseball fan, and he wrote me requesting that I do an episode about Australian MLB players, which I've added to the schedule. Um, so, Michael, thank you for reaching out. He gave me some information about the origins of baseball in Australia. I can't wait to research that topic, so it's going to be fun. But going back to this, 
this game. This was not the first time the MLB has played a game in Australia, believe it or not. The White Sox and the Giants traveled to Australia to play an exhibition match there in 1914. So this is, I guess you could say, a return for the uh, professional baseball back to Australia. But let's talk about that current, well, that most recent one, I should say, that March 22nd game. We saw the Dodgers ended up prevailing in this game over the Diamondbacks. They won by a score of 3-1, to one, and boy, did the fans show up. 38,266 fans came to watch this game. Now, the uh, big name, or I guess you could say the, the player of the game for this particular match was Clayton Kershaw. He got the start for the Dodgers. He pitched six and two-thirds innings. He allowed five hits, but he struck out seven in just six innings. Very nicely done, Clayton. And this was the season, folks, the 2014 season. That's when Clayton Kershaw went absolutely bananas, had the best season of his career. That season, that 2014 year, he went 21-3. and He posted a 1.77 ERA, and he did it in 27 starts. He won the Cy Young and the MVP that season. So whatever he had to eat or drink over in Australia, boy, did that stick with him during that season. Started off on the right foot and ended up having just an amazing set of games that year for him. We see the Dodgers take game one. What happened during game two, that March 23rd game? Well, the Dodgers, again, posted a great, great game. They won 7-5 to in front of 38,079 fans that showed up for this game. We saw D. Gordon... Yazio Puig and Juan Uribe all go three for four at the plate. This was a hit fest for LA. So there you have it, folks. We have five instances of MLB teams playing games outside of their professional stadiums. And while these five are just some small examples of this occurring, because there were a lot to choose from, these are the five I felt were the most uh, significant. I think the overall trend of teams playing games outside of their home ballparks is a really good concept that Major League Baseball should continue leaning into. And I hope they do more of this in the future. I think it's a really effective type of marketing. It just creates a thematic experience that's really, really resonating, especially, I think, with younger fans these days. That Field of Dreams games was such a a neat thing to watch. And we see other sports doing the same thing. Hockey, of course, I think is doing a great job of this with their outdoor games that they hold every year in different locations. But look, baseball has an opportunity here to use these neutral sites as a chance to grow the game because baseball truly is a global game. And it's one of those sports that really can unite us. We can put aside political differences and come together and just enjoy a sport. And that's the beauty, I think, in making sure that we can continue this trend of making sure that we hold baseball games in places where baseball isn't played every day, both in-country and out-of-country. Folks, thanks so much for taking the time to make me a part of your day and tuning in for this episode. It really does mean a lot to me. I enjoy doing this, and certainly one of the big reasons I do it is because I know that you are listening and that you're enjoying baseball's history as much as I do. So with that said, remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. We'll see you on the next episode.